Luke chapter 23, starting now at verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The Roman government did not give the religious leaders amongst the Jews the authority to execute criminals. Capital cases had to be referred over to the Roman government. Now, there were occasions when the Jewish leaders or the council did not obey this and took matters into their own hands, such as with the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that Paul would later visit upon believers. But those were things operating outside of the normal channels. Normally, they had to deliver someone over to the secular government, to the Romans, for execution. And so they brought the prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth, they brought him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, or more technically, the procreator of the Roman province of Judea. They had every reason to believe that Pontius Pilate would very easily say, Off with his head, so to speak, crucify him. Because Pontius Pilate had a well-deserved reputation for being a cruel man, for being a man who did not mind shedding blood, for being a man who was utterly insensitive to the uh, feelings of the Jewish people. And so they had a good reason to believe that Pilate would very quickly give them what they asked for. And so they come, verse 2, to Pontius Pilate with three charges. Look at this. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now notice that Jesus was formally condemned before the Jewish council of the crime of blasphemy. That was the formal charge against him. You're a blasphemer. You claim to be God and we say you are not. Therefore, you are guilty of blasphemy. They do not bring this charge to Pontius Pilate because what would Pontius Pilate care? Pontius Pilate and the Romans, they believed in dozens of gods. What's one more? No, they knew that that charge wouldn't mean anything before the Roman governor. So they brought up three other charges. Notice what they were. Number one, that Jesus was a revolutionary. That's what they mean with the phrase perverting the nation. It means to turn the nation in a rebellious way. Number two, they accused him, verse two, of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, of being a tax revolutionary, that kind of person. And then thirdly, in verse two again, they said that he claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar, verse two, saying that he himself is Christ the king. That charge in particular made uh, Pilate's ears burn just a little bit. Because look at it here, verse 3. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. We can only wonder what Pontius Pilate thought when he first laid eyes on Jesus of Nazareth. He saw a beaten and bloodied man before him. But Jesus didn't look especially regal. Jesus didn't look especially majestic. There there wasn't a halo above his head. And the crown of thorns had not yet been pressed down upon it. 
The Roman governor looked at him and yet he saw this man. This wasn't a man to grovel for his life. Pontius Pilate had seen many men grovel for their lives before him. Please don't kill me. Uh, He'd seen many men who would do anything to save their own skins. And he could instantly read up this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and say, this man is not like any other man who stood before me. He's fearless. Yet there's a calm resignation and nobility in his face and in his eyes that he just couldn't shake in his mind's eye. But when he looked at him, Jesus looked anything except a king. I mean, there he is, bloodied. There he is, beaten. There he is with people jeering at him and accusing him. Supposedly, the same people that he is king over delivered him to Pilate for crucifixion. Doesn't sound much like a king. Therefore, Pilate was probably sarcastic when he made that remark, when he asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? The emphasis, the phrasing in the original Greek puts the emphasis on you. In other words, you, king of the Jews, really, really you. This is the one. And what did Jesus reply? Look at it there in verse three. It is as you say. You know, I can't get out of my mind what Jesus might have said on that occasion. The defense that Jesus might have made for himself. Wouldn't it have been amazing? Your Honor, I want to call to witness uh, this leper that I healed. I want to call to witness this uh, demonic, demoniac in the gatherings. I want to call to witness uh, Lazarus, one I raised from the dead. I want to call to witness all these people. I want to call to witness my disciples. Well, they couldn't really be found. But I, I want to call to witness this man or that man. Think of, all, think of the amazing defense that Jesus could have. Think of how Jesus could have discerned the secrets of Pilate's heart and appealed to them. Think of the defense he could have mounted, but he didn't. Instead, he gave the same answer that he gave to the accusation of being God. Uh, Earlier that evening, he was asked by the Sanhedrin, are you the son of God? Are you God? And he said, it is as you say. And then they asked him again, are you a king? And now he answers Pilate the same thing that he answered to the Sanhedrin. He said, it is as you say. Now look at what Pilate says in verse four. This is critical. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Isn't that remarkable? Because supposedly Jesus just confessed to the crime. But yet Pilate understood the situation. He could read it. Look, I'm not saying that Pilate was a genius, but he wasn't stupid either. You don't advance to that position in Roman politics without being able to read people and understand politics. And Pilate could see, okay, I get it, I get it. Matter of fact, one of the other gospels, I believe it's the gospel of Matthew, it specifically says he understood that they delivered him unto him because of envy. Pilate read it, he understood it. So he said, look, even though the guy says it is as you say, I get it, he gets it, the religious leaders get it. Here's my verdict. Look at it again in verse four. Here's my verdict. Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. That was Pilate's verdict. How many of you, if you've ever been on trial, don't raise your hands, I don't want to know. (laughs) Even if it's in traffic court, wouldn't you love to hear the judge look at you and say, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this woman. Wouldn't you say, hot dog, I'm out of here. Do you realize that he just pronounced Jesus not guilty? Do you realize that 
Everything that Pilate did after this to send Jesus to the cross was a travesty of Roman justice. We already saw a travesty of Jewish justice on the night before when Jesus was tried, the secret night trial and then the hastily called morning trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. But now we find a travesty of Roman justice. And ladies and gentlemen, there's something so... I was going to use the word marvelous, but it's not marvelous. It's horrible. There is something so extremely horrible in the sufferings and death of Jesus that God made sure that Jew and Gentile had equal hand in it. It's as if if the Jewish religious leaders would commit an atrocity against Jesus, God made sure that it was matched by the Roman Gentiles. Just to make sure that we all understood that everybody, Jew or Gentile, has a hand in this. Now notice the next thing in verse 5. But they were the more fierce, saying... He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. You know, when Pilate said, I find no fault in this man, verse 4, It set off a firestorm among the religious leaders. No, you have to find him guilty. Look at all the terrible things he's done. They start shouting and yelling. And in the midst of all the shouting and yelling, they mention Galilee. Oh, that was the out that Pontius Pilate had been waiting for. Galilee? Is he a Galilean? Yeah, yeah. He he was born in uh, Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth and he lives at Capernaum. Well, that's Herod's territory. Now, when we talk about Herod, We're not talking about Herod the Great. We're talking about his son, Herod Antipas, who was as wicked as his father, Herod the Great, but not as great as Herod the Great. And so Herod Antipas was the ruler over the region of Galilee. And Pilate says, this is the out I've been waiting for. I can kill a lot of birds with one stone. Number one, I can get this man off my hands. Number two, I can mend some fences with Herod because we haven't been getting along too good lately. And thirdly, I I can just send this man off. I can forget about it and have somebody else deal with it. Wonderful. Job done. Go to Herod. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Herod had surely heard much about Jesus. He was the ruler over the area of Galilee. And for three years, Jesus had gone all over the cities and villages of Galilee, preaching the kingdom, doing amazing works of God, healing the sick, sometimes raising the dead, uh, delivering those who were demon-possessed. Jesus had an amazing three years of ministry in Galilee. Of course, Herod had heard of him. But he had never spoken with Jesus personally. And so it says, look at there in verse 8. He was exceedingly glad for he had desired a long time to see him. Now friends, if you just read that line from verse 8, you go, oh great. 
Herod is a sincere seeker. Friends, I have to say, in my preparation for tonight's teaching, I've been so deeply touched by a look at, an analysis of this man, Herod. It's the kind of thing that makes me want to think more deeply on it and maybe find an occasion to speak on another occasion about Herod. Because in many ways, I think that he typifies the spirit of our age. Typifies people who have a passing interest in Jesus, but pretty much it's this, Jesus, entertain me. Yeah, do, do some trick for me, Jesus. If you can entertain me, if you can hold my interest, well, then maybe, yeah, I'll goody, goody. I'm exceedingly glad to see you. But do I really seek after you? Don't ever forget that Herod had full opportunity to speak with Jesus for years before this, but he neglected it. But now when he's brought to him, oh, isn't this great? Do me a trick. Perform, conjurer, show me a miracle. That's what it says right there in verse 8. He hoped to see some miracle done by him. You see, he gave his attention to Jesus and he was even exceedingly glad to see him. Now, he wanted to hear from Jesus, but notice this. He wanted to hear from Jesus on Herod's own terms. Yeah, Jesus, I want to hear from you, but let's make no mistake about it. I'm asking the questions and you're going to give me the answers. You know, Jesus isn't really into that. He's not into this thing where we kind of come to him on our terms. Jesus says, I'm more than happy to talk to you. I am more than happy to reveal myself to you. But it'll be on my terms, Jesus says, not on your terms. Herod is the furthest thing in the world right here from a sincere seeker because Herod's interest in Jesus was not sincere and his, his whatever uh, interest he had in Jesus seemed to work more to his condemnation than it did to his praise. Don't ever forget that this was the same Herod Antipas that at one time showed a interest in John the Baptist. And in his word, he wanted to hear from John. Preach for me, John the Baptist. And where did that get John the Baptist? Imprisoned and then beheaded. This is the same man who cut the head off of John the Baptist. And at this point, Herod only wanted to hear from Jesus what he wanted to hear. Notice this. He questioned him with many words. He also wanted Jesus to prove himself, demanding a miracle. Friends, nobody is in a place to demand a miracle from Jesus as evidence he is who he says he is. No one. Now, do you want miraculous evidence? This book is filled with it and lives all around you are filled with it. And there are people, I have known them, who have asked God for a miracle to demonstrate himself and God has done it. But let me explain this to you. That is only out of the pure mercy and goodness of God. God is under no obligation to do that. God does not say, My miraculous power is given to this earth to entertain you. To merely thrill you. My miraculous power is given to bring me glory and to alleviate human need in sometimes unexpected ways. That's what the miracle power of Jesus did. You see, I can't get away from this phrase in verse 9. 
Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. You know, it's almost as if Jesus said this, Herod, you could have come unheard me anytime. I didn't speak in secret meetings. These weren't things held in closed homes or hidden away in caves. You had no interest. And now you say, goody, goody, do a magic trick for me. Herod, I got nothing to say to you. Nothing. My lips are sealed. It's done. I've got nothing to say. You see, Herod thought something like this. Let's hear an answer from the great teacher. Let's see a miracle from the miracle man. And Jesus may have thought in response, I have nothing for you, you murderer of my cousin, John the Baptist. You man who has lived a life in rejection of the truth. And now you come and for a thriller entertainment, you want me to do something for you. You want me to say something for you. You see, Jesus understood that John, excuse me, that Herod was a wretched, shallow man, and therefore he had nothing to say to him. Now, the same man who murdered John the Baptist over entertainment when his daughter danced before him now demands that Jesus do a miracle for his entertainment, and Jesus will have nothing of it. By analogy, we could say that Herod represents a type of modern seeker who is mainly interested in entertainment and showy miracles. Spurgeon spoke of this sort of person. I'm going to read to you an extended quote from Spurgeon. So, ready for this. Herod is a type of some who frequently come to this tabernacle. And go to other places of worship occasionally. People who were once under religious impressions. And cannot forget that they were so. But who will never be under any religious impressions again. They are now hardened into vain curiosity. They wish to know about everything that is going on in the church and the kingdom of Christ. But they are far enough from caring to become part and parcel of it themselves. They are possessed with an idle curiosity which would lift the golden lid off of the ark and intrude behind the veil. They like to gather together all the absurd stories which are told about ministers and to retail all the odd remarks which were ever made by preachers for centuries. All the gossip of the churches is sure to be known to them for they eat up the sins of God's people as they eat bread. It is not likely that their knowledge of religious things will be of any use to them, but they are ever eager after it. The church of God is their lounge. Divine service is their theater. And ministers are to them as actors. And the gospel itself so much playhouse property. They are a sort of religious Athenians. Spending their time in nothing else than in hearing some new thing. Hoping that perhaps some singular and unexpected discourse may be delivered in their hearing. Which they can retail in the next company where they would raise a laugh. To them... Preaching is all a farce and worked up with a few falsehoods of their own. It makes excellent fun for them and causes them to be regarded as amusing fellows. 
Let them look at Herod and see in him their leader, a type of what they really are or may soon become. There's something there. There's something there in Herod that speaks to a modern generation that is drunk with a lust after entertainment. So notice now verse 11 where we read. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with one another. Well, obviously there's a couple powerful things to note. First of all, then Herod, verse 11, with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him. The contempt and the mockery showed what Herod really thought of Jesus. When Jesus refused to entertain him, then he would torture and mock Jesus for his own entertainment. Because after all, Herod must be entertained. So if Jesus won't provide it, then soldiers beat him, mock him, sport on him. Spit in his face, whatever it takes to raise a laugh or a level of excitement or adrenaline to myself. Yes, this is what I want to see. That's one aspect of it. But you notice the other aspect there in verse 12? It says, that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends. There it is, the suffering Jesus, bringing people together. Unfortunately, he's bringing enemies of Jesus together, is it not? Suddenly, Pilate and Herod can become friends because they found something that they agree on. Reject the Son of God. Spurgeon had something very interesting to say about it. He said that it was a shame that some Christians hold on to their ill will against one another while the suffering Jesus even brought Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas together. Yet it won't bring together Christians who should be reconciled by the suffering of Jesus. Going on now, verse 13. Here we begin the second trial before Pilate. Verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent him back. I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. It's fascinating. That Jesus, after his trials before the religious leaders, then he has a trial before Pilate. Pilate sends him on to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And at the second trial before Pilate, what does Pilate announce over Jesus again? Look at it there in verse 14. Having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man. That right there is declaration of innocence number two. You see that? It's not hard to understand. I find no fault in this man. Then look at it again in verse 15. Indeed, nothing worthy of death has been done by him. Nothing. That's declaration of innocence number three. I don't quite get it, but there's an interesting parallel here between three denials of Peter and three declarations of Jesus' innocence on behalf of Pilate. 
Three times Pilate declares him not guilty or innocent. And Pilate clearly, he eloquently declared Jesus to be innocent of any crime. And this was the result, as he says, of his careful examination of Jesus and the evidence brought against him. And so what does he say? Verse 16, he says, therefore, I will chastise him and release him. Now you might think, okay, a little slap on the wrist. You know, a little, I'll chastise him and release him. No, the chastisement that Pilate had in mind was the infamous Roman scourging. Friends, the Roman scourging was basically when a man was tied to a pole, his arms were wrapped around the pole and his hands, his wrists would be tied together with a leather strap. You know, his back in that extended position would be flexed and open. There would be, of course, no garment upon his back whatsoever. And then they would whip the victim with a cat of nine tails. That was a, a, a whip with a handle and several leather straps or thongs that would have bone or glass or metal tied to or embedded on the end. And it was used to strike and then scratch down the back of the afflicted victim. According to Jewish law, you couldn't strike a person much less with a cat of nine tails. They did much more merciful one with more like a whip or, or a cane. They would actually strike somebody. But even that, under the mercy of the Jewish law, you couldn't do it more than 40 times. There was no such limit in Roman law. And I can't say that it was done with Jesus because we're not specifically told, but it was a customary practice in the Roman world where you would continue to beat a person until they confessed to the crime that they were accused of. Jesus had no crime to confess. of, So we don't know how many times the back of Jesus bore that bloody whip upon it. But I will tell you this. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for somebody to die from these scourgings, from this chastisement. So when Pilate says, look at it again there in verse 16, I will therefore chastise him and release him. He's not talking about some light little punishment. I mean, to put it in our parlance, he'd say something like this. I am going to whip him within a few inches of his life. I will leave him in a perilous condition. He'll belong in an intensive care ward when I'm done with him, but I won't kill him. Or probably he won't die. Now notice. He says, I'll do that, then I will release him. Verse 17, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Pilate believed that he had a way for Jesus to escape death. He planned to release him according to the custom of releasing a prisoner at the Passover season. I mean, Pilate probably thought about it this way. He said, listen, this man claims to be king And if he's even the slightest bit hostile to Rome, this will play great to the crowd. They'll love him. So when I hold him, hey, this is your king. Don't you want him released? The people say, no, no, yes, release him, release him, release him. Pilate, no, we don't want him. That's what he's hoping on. That the crowd will demand his release and say no to further punishment. One other thing to think of before we go on to verse 18. How would you like it? You're in court and the judge says, Not guilty. I find no guilt in this person. I find no fault in them. But take him out back and whip him a bit before you release him. What? Wait a minute. I thought you said, uh, I I find no fault in this man, but find him $100,000 and send him on his way. What? I thought you said that you... 
Do you see the fundamental injustice of what's happening to Jesus? According to Pilate, he deserved no punishment, none whatsoever. Verse 18. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and that of the chief priests prevailed So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. The crowd whom Pilate was convinced would release Jesus instead condemned Jesus. And because of this, when the crowd shouted out, verse 18, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Pilate did not find the courage. He did not find the courage to oppose both the religious leaders and the crowd. Friends, this is an infinite stain upon Pontius Pilate. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew what Pilate did right around this time? He took a basin of water and he washed his hands. Very dramatic gesture, isn't it? I have no guilt in this. I wash my hands. Friends, how effective was that little hand washing in cleansing Pilate from his guilt? There comes a time when a man or a woman must make a courageous stand for Jesus Christ. For what's right? I'm not even talking about for a religious principle. We're talking about what's right and what's wrong here. What's just and what's unjust. And Pilate refused to take the courage to make that stand. And therefore, in the Apostles' Creed, as in other creeds, what Pilate so desperately wished would be forgotten. It's said over and over again, probably millions upon millions of times through the histories of church, they remembered what Pontius Pilate did when they say in the Apostles' Creed that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's Pilate's legacy. When the crowd shouted out, verse 20, but they shouted saying, crucify him, crucify him. Friends, I got to say that this is a strange, it's almost an insane scene. I mean, think of it. Let the camera pan back. What do you see right here? You see a cruel, ruthless Roman governor who for some reason is trying to let the prisoner go. And then what do you find? You find him trying to let the life of a miracle-working Jewish teacher be free against the strenuous objections of both the religious leaders and the crowd who were all Jewish people. It's crazy. It's like everything is topsy-turvy. It's turned upon its head. But at the end of it all, look at it there at verse 25. And he released them to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison but he delivered Jesus to their will the crowd rejected Jesus and embraced Barabbas do you know what the name Barabbas means 
Bar Abbas, son of the father. Isn't that bizarre? They reject Jesus of Nazareth to lay hold of another son of the father. A false son of the father. You know, I wish I could give you some great romantic story about Barabbas. We have, of course, absolutely no evidence that he ever understood the magnitude of what was done for him. But do you understand that if there was ever a man who could be able to say, Jesus died for me, it was Barabbas. That cross was literally made for Barabbas. When they were preparing crosses in the morning, all right, how many do we need today? Well, we got these two thieves and we got Barabbas. Okay, make up three crosses, get three crosses ready to go, get all the things we're going to need. You know, all the, the, the Romans are very organized. They knew, you know, they put everything in order. They knew, okay, we need this many crosses. Okay, let's do that. The cross that Jesus was crucified upon was intended for Barabbas. Barabbas knew more than anybody. Jesus died for me. Verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now even before Jesus was scourged, his physical condition was weak. We would assume that Jesus was a normal, healthy man, I mean, think of all the walking he did. Think of all the, you know, he was a carpenter. I mean, we think of him as being a strong, healthy man. And almost certainly he was. I mean, I don't think that's an unfair supposition. But the events, both from the night before, a sleepless night, all the betrayals, all the beatings he had borne, plus the scourging he bore upon his back, left him in a perilously close to death state. So as they led him away, they would strip off all of his clothes, which by the way, would be painful in itself because, you know, the blood would just be beginning to clot on his back and such. And as they led him to crucifixion, he, like all victims of crucifixion, would be forced to carry the wood that he would hang upon. Now, the Romans were creative in the sense of just making do with what they had with crosses. If they only had what would be the equivalent of a couple of two-by-fours to crucify somebody on, they would do it. But normally, a cross would be two pieces of wood collectively weighing maybe something like 300 pounds. And normally, again, they did it all different ways. So we can't say that we know for sure exactly the circumstances of Jesus' crucifixion. But we do know this, that normally, the Romans would leave the vertical beam of the cross implanted at a place of regular crucifixion. The prisoner would normally carry only the horizontal beam of the cross. Now that itself would be 50, 75, maybe 100 pounds. So it's not like it was easy. But you can imagine what a weakened condition it would be for a man to carry a 75 or maybe 100 pound load all the way to the place of crucifixion. But that was Jesus' assignment. So as he began to do it, they noticed something. They noticed that he couldn't do it. And so therefore, verse 26, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country and they laid on him the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. In other words, Jesus, you go forward 
And Simon will follow upon you, carrying your cross. Why'd they pick Simon? Well, probably because they could tell he was an out-of-towner. He was from modern-day Libya, North Africa. That's where Cyrene is. And this guy who had probably saved his whole life to attend a pilgrimage of a Passover, in Jer- he didn't come to see Jesus, folks. He came for the Passover in Jerusalem. Maybe this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, he'd saved all his life to go and actually attend a Passover uh, celebration there in Jerusalem. And as he comes, he's picked out of the crowd as an out-of-town foreigner. And what do they do? You, you carry the cross. And listen, when the Roman soldier told you, you carry the cross, you carried the cross. If you didn't carry the cross, you could end up on the cross. And so he did, can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the humiliation? Because in front of you is a naked man with a sign around his neck. The sign is the sign that would end up upon the cross when Jesus was crucified. That's what they did. They they made a sign, put it around the neck, and on Jesus' cross, on Jesus' sign, I should say, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he was carried away to the place. And... When they went from the place where the sentence was pronounced over to the place of crucifixion, they did not take the most direct route. They kind of made a little parade through the streets of the town. Why? This was advertising. Friends, Romans crucified people in the most public places possible. I heard a man teach on this recently, and he suggested that in the modern parlance, if you would translate to Santa Barbara, that they would have crucified Jesus, you know, somewhere between Home Depot and Costco. I mean, places where lots of people are going, commerce, major roads, everybody could see it. Because the Romans, it was in their interest to make crucifixion as absolutely public as possible. There's nothing private about it. And so they would lead him away. Now, friends, we have reason to believe that Simon came to know what it really meant to take up one's cross and follow Jesus. Because there's evidence to suggest that his sons became leaders among early Christians. There's some indications both at the end of the Gospel of Mark and in Romans chapter 16. We'll finish up quickly now, verses 27 through 31. And a great multitude of people followed him. Again, public as possible. A great multitude of people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented for him. But Jesus turning to them and said, I want you to think about this for a moment. You could say that this was the last teaching that Jesus ever did. Oh, he uttered some phrases from the cross and they're very meaningful phrases to be sure. But this was the last time that he said something that taught something, so to speak. So notice this. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? So the great multitude is following the securitous route all the way to the place of crucifixion. And in the midst of it, there are women, daughters of Jerusalem. And very appropriately, they're looking at this and they are weeping. 
I don't know if they would weep over everybody who would be crucified because it would be enough to move the conscience of any man, much less a tender-hearted woman, to look at a man so abused, so degraded, so tortured, so destined for a horrible few hours in front of him that it would make you weep. But when they saw the majesty of Jesus and when they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth bearing this cross, when they read it or when they heard it announced by the centurion, they couldn't help but weep. And what did Jesus say in response? He didn't rebuke them. But he told them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't cry for me. Weep for Jerusalem instead. Isn't it amazing that even in his extremity, Jesus is thinking of others and not himself. And what does he say? He goes, listen, I know you want to feel sorry for me and I understand that. But do you understand that a greater pain is going to come upon Jerusalem? So much so that he said this, and this is startling. He said in verse 29, blessed are the barren. Friends, normally, Jewish custom did just the opposite. The the fruitful womb was blessed. The nursing mother was blessed. But Jesus said, when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's going to be so horrible that normal conventions are going to be turned completely upside down and people are going to say, blessed are those who never had children. That's how horrible it's going to be. Even in those moments, Jesus was thinking of his deep love for that city that rejected him and was about to crucify him and how horrible it was going to be when the Romans shortly came in judgment upon them. And then he says this, verse 31. If they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? The idea of this is something like this. If this is the fate of the innocent, me, I'm not guilty of anything. And look what they're doing to me. What's going to happen to the guilty? To the guilty of those who reject me. Friends, it's kind of interesting to think that when we think of the horrific nature of the suffering of Jesus... When we think about it in every dimension, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever way you want to talk about it. Most of all, spiritual. When we think about every dimension of the suffering of Jesus, there's something in us that wants to weep. You know, it's almost as if Jesus would say this is, do not weep over my death. Weep over your sin that made it necessary. If Jesus says, don't you feel sorry for me? I am fulfilling the Father's will. I am demonstrating perfect love. I am doing this to rescue you and to win you for all eternity. I am doing this with the joy set before me. If you're going to weep, weep for your sin that made this necessary. I love it. We're not supposed to feel sorry for Jesus. Let me conclude with this quote from Spurgeon. You need not weep because Christ died one-tenth so much as because your sins rendered it necessary that he should die. You need not weep over the crucifixion, but weep over your transgression, for your sins nailed the Redeemer to the accursed tree. To weep over a dying Savior is to lament the remedy. It is wiser 
to bewail the disease. We supplied the disease. He supplied the remedy. Father, um, we pray that you would keep us in an attitude of reverence before your word. As we pause here and pick it up next Wednesday. And and Lord, we pray that um, even more than giving us a broken heart over what you suffered on the cross, we pray that we would have an even more appropriately broken heart over our sin that made it necessary. Do this in our midst, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.